What's the evidence that a Christian is a true follower of Christ? Well, what evidence should we look for? Should we even look for evidence at all? Well, that's the question we have for us sent to me by a good friend in Georgia. Hi, I'm Bob Buchanan, and this is Wisdom 828. Who are you? Who are so wise? My friend writes this, I have a problem with the phrase that I hear believers use regarding uh, other believers that we can't know a person's heart. And to some extent that is true. In John 15, Jesus states that those who abide in him will bear fruit. Now, if you don't abide, the branch is thrown away and burned. And so we should be able to see Christ in the life of another uh, believer. And here is the issue that I have. We are not to judge one another. I understand that. but. If you don't see the fruit of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, are we using the excuse of we can't know a person's heart as a means to avoid the situation or speak the truth to the one who may need it? I'd appreciate your thoughts. Well, that's a good question and a thorny one to answer. In what way can we tell that a person who professes faith in Christ has had a genuine conversion? Is there biblical evidence that we should see and look for? Well, Christians will often say, uh, well, we can't see what's in a person's heart, and that's true enough. So first, let's determine what we're talking about when we talk about the heart. Well, several years ago, I wanted to find out if the Bible had anything to say of a theology of the human heart, and I wasn't surprised to find that it does. I focused my study in three places, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. I found 218 verses in those books of the Old Testament that described the condition, the nature, and the failings of the human heart. Now, the Hebrew word for heart is leb, L-E-B, and it appears over 1,000 times in the Bible. It's most commonly used for the physical heart, that thing, that beating muscle that pumps blood through our system and is protected by a rib cage. But the word is also used as a metaphor for the emotional, intellectual, moral, and volitional aspects of what it means to be human. And this is the use of the word that we're most interested in. The Bible's view of the human heart is that it represents the deepest core of a person and our personality. It's the operational center, if you will, uh, that includes the emotions and the intellect and uh, moral activity. The Bible tells us that while we are humans, uh, we may look on someone's outward activity, but God, he, he looks at the heart where the motives and the intentions lie. In other words, the heart is unsearchable to human eyes, but the Lord searches the heart and he knows what's motivating a person's conduct. But that doesn't mean that we can't know anything about someone's central governing principles. Jesus said that the secrets of the heart's thoughts, those that we don't want anyone else to know about, can actually be picked up in the words that come from our mouths. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said, and the true, said that, and the true character of our nature then is revealed in our words. King Solomon was wise, and he said a wise man's heart guides his mouth. The wisdom of God or the world or a mixture of both deeply rooted in and filling the heart will be revealed in daily conversation or even in our conduct. So what we can safely say is that the intellectual reasoning, our feelings and our affections, and the abundance of our thoughts depend on the moral condition that governs the heart. 
And my friend is right about the near impossibility of knowing for certain the decisive motivational contents or moral dispositions of a person's heart. Uh, in Jeremiah, for example, we're told that the heart is desperately wicked. But when any heart is redeemed by Christ, there should be evidence of a change in the direction of that person's life, no matter how small. Now, this brings us to the need for good discipleship in the local church. Discipleship is the process of transforming an unbeliever whose heart was once dead to the things of God into a worshiper who matures and goes on maturing in his or her obedience to Jesus Christ and his teachings. Therefore, a disciple is anyone who, having heard the gospel, uh, trusts in Christ alone for salvation and for the forgiveness of sin. A disciple grows in submission to Christ's lordship in his or her life and in training for godliness. A disciple gives himself uh, or herself to the careful guidance of mature disciple makers in a local church that's governed by uh, an atmosphere of say, let's call it loving accountability. From the time of conversion onward, it should be evident that a disciple increasingly devotes his life to the purposes of God which include believing what Jesus believed, living as Jesus lived, loving as Jesus loved, serving as he served, and if called, leading as Jesus led. And so can these new life directions actually be observed? Well, yes, of course they can. If we think of the disciple's heart as the center of his affections, uh, sort of the planning center, or a place where commitments are made and decisions are followed, we can see the evidence of that. My friend called it fruit, the fruit of the Spirit growing in the believer, the fruit of Christ-likeness. The believer grows in the quality of Christ's own character, and that can be seen. This, this process of Christian growth happens over a lifetime and at varying uh, rates of speed. Some believers might grow quickly at the very beginning of their lives, and then others may grow gradually, and, and there'll be great spurts of spiritual maturity along the whole spectrum, and then you take two steps forward and maybe two steps back in your maturing and your growth. But here's what I think we can agree on. Growth is observable, and the examination for fruit, fruitfulness is allowable. The attitude that I often look for is striving. The, the Apostle Peter said it this way, make every effort to grow in the qualities that characterize us as Christians. It's perfectly legitimate to look at the fruit of growth. And I take this from Luke chapter six, where Jesus said, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. As many pastors have said, and I was one of them, we may not know the heart, but we can examine the fruit of someone's life. The Puritan pastor, Matthew Henry, says of this verse I just quoted, if the fruit is good, you may conclude that the tree is so. If the, con if the conversation is holy, heavenly, and regular, though you can't infallibly know the heart, yet you may charitably hope that it is upright with God, for every tree is known by its own fruit.
And something that I noticed recently about Paul in his letter to his young protege and son in the faith, Timothy, he had this estimation about Timothy's faith. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul was convinced of Timothy's faith because he had good teachers in his mother and his grandmother, but most of all, he could see that Timothy didn't try to put up a false front of faith, but he lived genuinely as a disciple. You know, there's something spiritually tangible about a faith that's genuine, just as there is something spiritually tangible about a faith that's hypocritical. And most of the time, Christians can spot the difference. Timothy's faith was genuine because he suffered and he wept and he rejoiced alongside Paul in his labors for the gospel. Paul points out the opposite of Timothy in another team member, Demas, who left the ministry because he loved the world. Finally, one more thought. I've often wondered if the phrase, well, we don't know what's in so-and-so's heart, so we shouldn't judge. I've often wondered if that really is just an excuse, like my friend said, to avoid our calling as Christians to help others progress in the faith. It's been my experience in ministry that God puts us into relationships with people at different times and for various reasons to encourage them in Godward growth. They cross our paths so that we might uh, grow spiritually uh, together, mutually, for mutual benefit. There are at least 31 one another verses in the Bible that plainly call believers to each to be each other's keepers, as Cain put it. So if you know someone who is in the orbit of your relationships, who may be showing signs of spiritual decay, you don't have to know that what's going on in their heart. Just go to them and ask them, how are they doing? And if they're struggling with something, they may just be waiting for someone like you to come with that kind of question as a helping hand. Well, that's all for today. Thanks to Steve Dime behind the camera, helping us at uh, Wisdom 828 fulfill our mission to stamp out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. You'll be of good cheer. <laughs>